0: You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, welcome back, devoted listeners. So glad you are with me today. Well, today's kind of a big day, isn't it? Unless you have been blissfully living under a rock for about the last three and a half years— you probably notice that today is election day. And I say three and a half years, you know, usually a campaign, what, it starts like a year, but I don't really think in modern day, at least as far as I can think the last two presidential elections, and for sure, for sure, this last one, that it basically like the president gets elected, and then you kind of start campaigning you maybe get a couple months and then you're in. So I feel like our new cycles have been basically running towards today, November 3rd, 2020, for the last, you know, three plus years, really. So for some of us, this is a boy day we've been dreading, like, oh my goodness, just don't even want to see this day. And then some of you might just be glad that this day is here so we can move on, right? But I wanted to look at this and hopefully give you guys some encouragement today, but I have to give you a little bit of context for me about election day. This is a big deal in my house, guys, and not maybe in the way that you're thinking, yes, I do follow politics and news. I've always done that. And so, yes, it is exciting and interesting, sometimes frustrating, but it is important for us to follow what's going on in the world around us. And so, yes, that's always been a big deal. I also think this is just a huge privilege that we get in our country, that we get to do this. You know, it just goes right over us guys, that there are countries where this is not a thing. Boy, I sure have enjoyed talking to some of the uh, people that go to our church that come from other countries where voting isn't a thing, or if they do have an election, it's not a free process at all. And we just don't have that perspective, I don't think very much. You know, we're spoiled here, guys. We just are used to this being a right. And we feel like we are entitled to this system of government. But we shouldn't just move on to the next thing without stopping and pausing and truly thanking the Lord that we are growing up here. We are living here. And we get to go through this process as infuriating as I know it can be at times, guys, because these are all imperfect people that we're electing. We are all sinners. I mean, it's not like it's a just wonderful fairy tale process to follow along, but it still is a privilege. And yep, Christians, you should vote. You really should. (laughs) I won't get going on that. But yes, we should vote. But I enjoy the historical, the practical merits, all of the things that are about Election Day. I truly do. But lest I get going on that and geek on that too much, I want to give a little bit of personal note for me that this is kind of just a ingrained family memory for me. And you're thinking how in the world is election day a family memory? But it really is. So I was 4, I think. My mom could probably have to double check me on that, but I think I was 4 or 5 the first time my dad was elected to public office. I'm from Wyoming, small town in Wyoming, and I was 4 or 5 when my dad was first elected and I just remember election night At that time, I was too young to wait up and listen to the radio to find out if dad had won or not, you know, and but I just remember the tension of it, right? I remember the excitement of it. I remember the months and months and months of wearing the T-shirts and calling and, you know, going to different events and that kind of stuff, you know, with my dad's name on it. And so it was a family affair, really. It really was. And election night in particular is just something that is just locked in my brain from that note, you know, just a personal note of like, oh, is dad going to win tomorrow? And that, you know, election when I was four or five, that would have been the first of, I want to say, four other elections that we would have gone through, three, where that same question and election night just being a big deal. So I just... I know some of you are like, you are crazy that you enjoy election night. I really do. I think some of it is just hinged on like what I just said about how what a privilege it is to be able to vote for people to be able to freely go and cast their vote for something like this. It's huge. It's huge. So it's a privilege and hinged on that. Then it just has a little bit of a personal note for me that I truly just enjoy this whole process. But like I said earlier, some of you guys, and really me, even at moments, have been dreading this day a little bit. And I think some of us just want it to go away so that we can not hear about it in the news all the time. But what I'm hoping to do today is encourage you guys, encourage myself too, on a day like today, because it's not too different, really. My encouragement is not going to be too different in today than what we can really do every day. But I find particularly on days like today, momentous Probably historic days like today, this is a really important time for us to look to the word of God and be encouraged in what really matters today. And on each election day, because as you can tell, I get pretty into these things. Yes, I do. Election day comes around and I am all in it. But here's the thing that keeps me just level headed in the best possible way is the sovereignty of God. Man. Guys, God is in control today. Sometimes I f- feel like there's days where we're like, well, it's easy to see when something amazing is going on in your church or in your home or in your family and you could go, "Oh yeah, God is in control of this. This is great. Sometimes it's harder to see the sovereignty of God when it feels like the world is going completely out of control. But I feel like that's all serve as just distractions to Who really is holding all of this stuff in his hands? So when I say sovereignty, sovereignty, what am I meaning by that really big, very churchy sounding word? Oh, I love this word. It just brings peace to my soul. But the sovereignty of God is it's his absolute right to do all things according to his good pleasure. Man, guys, he gets the right. God gets the right to do all the things that he chooses to do according to his will, according to his good pleasure. And just go ahead and get over it right now that you're not, I'm not going to understand all of the things that the Lord is going to deem as going to happen. We're not going to get to say that we totally agree every time or that we understand all the time. That's okay. We aren't God. So it's not up to us. It's God's sovereignty. And this doctrinal certainty is just such a comfort for me today. It really is. Regardless of who our president will be come middle of January, he's on the throne today and every day. So a couple things I want to encourage us in, and I'm going to refer back to a couple stories in the Bible, but this one in particular, I love the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel. This one just does not get old to me. And, you know, If you know the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible, Babylon was the pinnacle of the world at that point. It was the nation that everyone looked to. It was powerful. And Nebuchadnezzar was a king to be feared. And you get to see all kinds of great stories that are played out in the Bible as it pertains to Daniel and his relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had plenty of opportunities, really, didn't he? I mean, he had opportunities to see that God was king. You read the story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and he has that moment, and he realizes that, yeah, yeah, no, their king, the king, saved these men. But yet, it doesn't seem to stick. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he has a habit of being filled with pride. And it's in one of those moments that King Nebuchadnezzar, this king that is in charge of the most powerful nation, that he being filled with pride, there's a, it says that he is on the rooftop of his house and he looks over his kingdom and he, is a, he says, look at what I have made. Look what I have done. And if you know the story, guys, it's a crazy one, right? But I want to read to you a little bit of what it says in Daniel 4. Because Daniel comes and he tells Nebuchadnezzar that, hey, dude, this this is not looking good for you. The Lord sees all this and he sees the pride. He sees what's going on in your heart. And he says in Daniel 4.25, he says to him that you, Nebuchadnezzar he's speaking to, shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So first, he's given a little bit of a warning here, isn't he? He's he's told that he's basically told to repent, break off your sins, practice righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed. He is giving Nebuchadnezzar a word. Now, did you catch the the warning though? Like the thing that he is telling Nebuchadnezzar that this is what your end is going to be should you not choose those things. It's a crazy picture. You're going to be driven from men, you're going to eat grass. What in the world? What is all that? Well, if you know the story, that is exactly what happened to him. He did as I said, he was up on looking over his kingdom and he said, "Look at all I have done. Look at all I have made." And at that moment, God fulfilled every one of those things that he had spoken through Daniel. And that's what happened. So the leader of this most powerful nation known to the world at the time is driven from people. He is, you know, it said that his his nails would grow like really long and like a beast. And he would eat grass. I mean, he literally lost his mind here. But I love how Nebuchadnezzar comes to reasoning At the end of this season, again, a season that the Lord had determined. He said how long it would be. He said in that first thing through Daniel that it would be seven periods of time shall pass over you. So at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar has his realization. Then he would say, this is Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand, or say to him, what have you done? This is Nebuchadnezzar's moment, his aha moment, when by the Lord's grace, his reason returns to him and he realizes he lifts his eyes to heaven, his reason returns and he blesses the Most High. But I love the realization that he has. Him, Nebuchadnezzar, being the most powerful king and having this moment where he says, I'm not the most high. No, you, God, are the most high. He praises and he honors him who lives forever. And he says, your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Those are like, we can read over that and go, oh, that sounds really great and really poetic because neither one of us really feel like we have any dominions, really. But this is a king who would have had a dominion. He knew what it meant to have a kingdom. And he knew what he, it meant to rule from generation to generation. That meant something to kings. And he's laying that down and he's saying, you, God, are the most high. And it's your dominion that is everlasting, not mine. It's a big one. But I love looking at this story here because he is going to do exactly what we seem to think is not possible. You know, we can see these kings and leaders and elected officials and all the things that are going on. And we it looks from our perspective and from theirs, that theirs is the everlasting dominion. Regardless of political party, both of them have power in mind, and they want to see their kingdom live forever. And here we have this example of Nebuchadnezzar, a truly powerful king that was abased, right? I mean, he was brought low, he was brought to eat grass like cattle. And then comes to this realization of who really is in control. I just love this picture. I love the story. It does not get old. I love this truth of the word because it's a picture, a letting us see how that plays out, that God is sovereign. I like how Paul says this in Romans, too, because he, he alludes to other Old Testament pictures as well, or figures. And in Romans 9, 15 through 23, he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, remember that phrase. We're going to keep reading, but I want to come back to that. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, remember the story of Pharaoh, here we go. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So that's referring to the story, obviously, in Exodus when Moses is before Pharaoh and you know Pharaoh would not let the people go, right? And sometimes Pharaoh hardened his heart and sometimes the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And often you'll read that story and if you break that down, you go, boy, hey, wait a minute, why, why did the Lord harden Pharaoh's heart? And we can go, wait, why? But then go back to verse 16, where it said, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, the, the people are not the issue. They're not the thing that's at play here. It's God who is, will determine who he has mercy on who he has mercy. But I want to read a little bit more in this passage, too. And starting in verse 19, it says, you will say to me, then, why does he still find fault or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Guys, there's so much in this passage here. We're not even gonna scratch the surface. I just wanna highlight those pieces of, why do you think it is? Why do we ask God why? You know, I mean, really that's the question we get with this sometimes, where we wanna say, but Lord, why is this happening? Why do we have all of this unrest going on? Why is this person in charge? Why is this person in charge? all the things that we want to ask God. Go back to verse 16 when it said, remember, it's not on human will or exertion, but on God. Paul is telling us here, and guys, we got to get this. We are clay. We heard seriously lumps of clay. I'm not a artist by any stretch of the imagination, but I do remember getting to take I think it was some kind of shop class or something in like the seventh or eighth grade. And we got to make things in a pottery thing, like a little clay class. And, you know, probably the best part is when you're getting to squish it, you know, and you're getting to play with it. And, you know, you're trying to make it into the little vase that they're giving you instructions, which honestly, I don't think mine ever looked very good. But, you know, you start making it and it starts to look like a total disaster. And so you smash it down and then you try again and you do your thing. But that's what it's it's giving us the example here that we're clay. Guys, we're like this, we're just this mess of dirt and water and we're just clay. And a lot of times we as humans, we want to be a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar and we don't like that. We're not clay. We're so much more noble than that. Really? Are we though? Because here's the thing it says, we are clay. If we don't like that, it's too bad we are. Our country, our leaders, clay. It's all clay. He is God. So if what is going on in the news freaks you out, be less disgruntled by that reality and be more encouraged that God is our molder. You know, all these things are in his hands. Even this right? Even this giant 2020 mess or however long, if you want to look at the entire election cycle, however long this all has been going on, even this, all of this is in his hands. Doesn't that give you some peace? That gives me some peace. Psalm 29, 10 and 11 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. When I get to days like today, I just, those seeds of anxiousness and worry, what will tomorrow look like? You know, what, is, you know, we just want to ask questions and we get so concerned about the things that we read and see. And, but I love reflecting on the Psalm twenty nine ten 10 right here. The Lord sits enthroned. Man, he's not nervous. He's not getting off the throne just for today, guys. He's sitting on the throne. And then I love that the psalmist says, may the Lord give strength to his people. And that's what we need, right? What if we were left with all this and had no peace of who was truly in control? What if we were in control? I mean, like, really, what if we, I mean, we know we think we are, but we're not. But what if we were? I mean, that's that's kind of terrifying, isn't it? But the Lord is the one that sits on the throne. And one of the best uses, I think, for me on a, on a past election day, and for sure how I'm spending this one, too, is spent in two things, prayer and worship. But will everything just magically be better tomorrow, next week? When all of this is, you know, over-ish, I mean, who knows exactly what that looks like, perhaps some of the hype will die down. But not to be a huge downer here, but when we wake up tomorrow, next week, whenever we think this kind of settles down, we will all still be a whole bunch of sinners. Yeah. I know the election, our leaders, the civil unrest in our country have been front and center. But we can't forget that truly our problem, what is at the very bottom, when you strip away all the different ways that it looks, our problem is still sin itself. And some people say, well, that's just too simplistic. You know, we need to have social solutions and we need to have different things that we do to fix our problems. And they'll say it's more nuanced than that. You know, we, you can't just say that this is just a sin issue. But really? I mean, honestly, I have a hard time when I really ask that question, how is sin not at the bottom of all of it? How should we move on past this crazy season that we've been in? But something that encouraged me was doing a little research on the history of revivals in our country. And this first I've always kind of been a student of this a little bit. My dad was all about the revival. And when I was younger, I remember him telling me a lot about the Asbury Revival, which we'll we'll kind of touch on that one in just a second. That happened in a college in 1970. And my dad kind of grew his faith solidified. He was grew up in a Christian home, but his faith really kind of became his own through an extension of that movement in the 70s, a bit of the Jesus movement. And so he always took it really seriously just to be praying for our country, to be praying for revival. And I've referred to his journals that he would keep in the past. And and, uh, he had several pages in his journal that he, in his prayer journal, where he would write out verses about Revival and praying for our country. And, you know, that story we just talked about in Daniel, that's in there, too, you know, but but being reminded of those things that, first of all, God is sovereign. God is the one that's in control. But praying for that revival in ourselves, in our churches, in our country. So there's been a couple big ones right? In the 1700s, 1734-ish, and I say that because there's always a little bit that's leading up to this, but that's kind of the date that everybody gives credit to the Great Awakening. And, you know, that was kind of kicked off with Jonathan Edwards and his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and also uh, George Whitefield. Those were two really famous preachers at that time. But they had one thing in common, I was reading with those two, because they were kind of different guys. I guess it sounds like Edwards was not that much of an orator necessarily. He was like kind of the theological giant, but he was not really that much of a speaker per se. Whereas Whitfield, I mean, even Benjamin Franklin, I guess, heard him speak once and was just in that he could just move an audience by just one word. He just must have had this really commanding voice. I think I'd, I'd like to hear that someday. It's too bad that he didn't have recordings. Maybe in heaven we can check out a George Whitfield DVD. But it said that they, the two of them had one thing in common, is that they, the conviction is that the gospel is what compels a personal decision that will change an ordinary man into a new being. The gospel's always the big deal. Sinners in the Hands of the Angered God, that famous sermon, was... He's comparing a spider hanging precariously over the flames. Guys, like a horrifying picture already. Most of us are like, especially this time of year, there's just seems like spiders come out of the woodwork from everywhere and they're just the grossest. And there is this giant spider that's living on my deck right now that I do not know why my husband will not let us kill, but giant spider. And so Edwards creates this picture of this big old spider and he's saying, sinners, that's what you are. And just kind of hanging precariously over the fires of hell. And people were terrified hearing this. But the Lord started something in this. And this huge revival was started. Whitfield, he compared sinners to a helpless blind beggar that are, you know, like wandering around on the edge of a cliff. And he, in his sermon, he said something about as, you know, that the blind man, that he'll stumble forward. And the staff that he's using to walk along, that, that it slips from his hands. But he doesn't know that there's a cliff right there. And so he reaches for the staff to try to grab it. And there's nothing there. Cause he's not, and he's not conscious of the danger. And he's trying to, that's the picture he was trying to create of what sinners are like, how precarious that cliff is. There was definitely some fear to this. But hell is real. Hell is, is, if it's real, then yeah, you want to be afraid of that in the best possible way, in the sense that draws you to the gospel. The next revival came along in 1794, and this one they call the revival of the frontier. And I find it interesting in both of these times, you know, I think we sit here in 2020 and we think back to these times of like 1700s and we're like, oh man, people must have just been so godly and just, you know, basically Puritans walking around. And it really was not the case. In each of the times that I was studying about these revivals, so much was going on where people were really walking away from the Lord. This time with the frontier, you know, this is the time when the gold rush was starting to happen in California and people are being driven out that way. And it was just a time where people were just walking away from religion in general. Some of the European intellectualism and some of that kind of stuff was kind of seeping into the colleges and that sort of stuff. But the revival of the frontier, just it began with a really basic thing of a circular letter, because that's what they did back then. There was no texting, there was no emailing. But they started this letter that would get passed from city to city and, you know, wagon village to wagon village as people were going out west, calling people to pray. And it started this kind of this surgency of um they called them Aaron and her societies, which I find that fascinating. You know, that picture in the old testament when Moses was when Joshua was down in the battle and he was fighting and Moses would lift his hands up and be up to the Lord. And when his Moses' hands were raised, the people did well. And if his hands fell down, they started to lose. And so Aaron and her, they come along Moses and they lift his hands and they had victory in that battle. But so in this particular revival in the late 1700s, early 1800s, both um, kind of extended to that period, these Aaron and Her society started where they were specifically being tasked with holding up the hands of their ministers throughout the country, you know, praying for their pastors. Jonathan Edwards' grandson is kind of a figure in this time period. His name was Timothy Dwight, and he was used to sort of shake up Yale and all of the intellectuals that were coming in and, and really started something there. But it's so interesting to me that A lot of our universities and a lot of the denominations that we know now really grew and were solid in the scriptures back then. Many new denominations were formed and then other ones. But I mean, thousands and thousands of people were saved at a time in both of these revivals when, you know, our population wasn't that big. So by percentage, it was pretty incredible the the amount of people that were coming to Christ. The next one that I think is so cool, and I had never really even heard of this one. And I don't know if this is its fancy name or not. But what I was studying, they called it the Fulton Street Prayer Meeting. And it happened in 1857. And what I loved about this guy is he was not a pastor. He was somebody that was hired to kind of do uh, visitations and, you know, go and see people and also be praying. and but he was not a seminary guy. He had no ministry experience. He was actually a merchant. And he decided he wanted to start these prayer meetings. So the first prayer meeting he starts on Fulton Street is in this this little room, and there were six people that showed up, six people. But he said, we're going to do an hour of prayer. We're going to meet at noon. and If you can come for five minutes or 10 minutes or the whole hour, whatever, but we're going to pray. And it was six people that first day. So I kind of wonder what he thought. Like, did he think that, well, I don't know why I was so compelled to do this because there's only six people here, six people in extremely short period of time. It grew to 3000 people daily. He wanted to do it once a week, ended up needing to do it every day. And almost 3,000 people were in that room. And, you know, everywhere it's quoted, it says there was a revival of prayer. It says there was, they quote that there was not really a hysteria or any like, you know, no crazy stuff going on. It was just prayer. And I love that picture because as you observe each of those movements, each of those revival as our country kind of records them, each of them, what is, what's the common element there? It's prayer. Even I didn't talk about it this time, but leading up to the Great Awakening, there was prayer meetings happening. There was a group of women that would meet and pray on a regular basis, including the night before that uh, sermon was given by Edwards, and Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. There was a big prayer meeting happening that night. Well, I say big. I actually don't even know how many women were in there. But it was prayer each of those, we see that. And I think sometimes we probably feel like maybe it's, I don't know, it feels like there's only six people in here. What good can come of that? I read other stories of like some of those original six that were in there and amazing things that they would do for the kingdom. And many, many people would come to know Jesus through those people. But prayer is a big deal. Jonathan Edwards said one time, he said, prayer is as natural an expression of faith as breathing is of life. And I kind of wondered, you know, do we approach prayer like that, you know? Or do we kind of put it in this category of like, it's got to be something that's worded a specific way and we have to have a certain amount of time? Or is it just, just like breathing? Do we just do it that often? The other one i mentioned earlier the asbury revival it took place in a college in kentucky and it was in 1970 and i loved the normalcy of this one because it did not start with any kind of rousing sermon that got people all freaked out or anything like that it actually was at a college where the students were coming in for their regular chapel service because back in those days All colleges were Christian colleges, (laughs) amazingly enough. But even though they might have been Christian in name, that did not mean that there was necessarily this just, you know, fire for the Lord happening in those places. But it was a routine you know that you had the chapel service and so these students were going in for their chapel and the guy who was leading it at this particular time he did not have a word he was really going to preach he felt like it was just going to be a time to allow students to share testimony and to have a time of prayer and so he opened it with prayer and then he uh, shared a little bit of his own testimony of just something you know things that the lord was doing in his life and the spirit just brought people to the front and these students just one after another kept coming up over and over and over and they'd come up and then then after sharing their testimony for a little bit you know then somebody else would come up and just lead in prayer and then somebody else would come up and they would sing a hymn and none of this had ever been done before this wasn't like oh well this is kind of like what we did last week and so nope mm this had never been done not like this and it just kept going and going, and the the bell rang for you know the students to go off to class. They all just stayed, and people just kept coming up. They kept coming up, and then there would be time of like confession. People were just confessing their own sins of things that they had been doing, and they would be going to other people that were present and asking forgiveness, and relationships were restored. and And it just kept going, and then it went through lunch, and the same thing was still happening. And it turned out that I. Students just kept pouring into this building, and it went in this particular meeting for 185 straight hours that these students, this process just kept happening, praying, singing a hymn, praising the Lord. But it was a just this really cool revival that happened in this little college in Kentucky that then kind of spurred all over our country a little bit. And for all the things that we kind of remark about what the 70s were, many will talk about the Jesus movement of the 70s. And I don't know experientially anything from that, other than, like I mentioned to you before, that you know, my dad, he kind of his faith was really strengthened through that movement. And then when you see all the the legs and the lengths of that legacy, even in my own life it's astounding. And it was so humble, really, in the way it began. It was prayer in the way that Jonathan Edwards talked about that. It's it, that in a natural expression of faith. It's just, it's just br- like breathing. And I wonder if we do pray I mean, it, like that. If you can't, you can't hold your breath for very long, could we look at prayer like that, that we really need it just to keep going? Today, on a day like election day, with all of the crazy going on, I want to be called to pray. And what are we praying for? But one of the verses about our leaders and the kinds of men and women we are praying in our elected offices, I love in 2 Kings 22, when it talks about Josiah, you know, and it says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of his David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left it may seem in our day that men and women in our public office like that don't exist but let's not get discouraged let's continue to pray for that let's pray for the Josiahs the ones that will not turn aside to the right or to the left but the other thing that prayer in all of these situations with the revival and all of these examples Prayer then always led to this individual repentance. Repentance is always a piece of this. And point does that word make us feel really uncomfortable? Either it sounds like way too much of a Bible word, or it's just, you know, we don't really want to do that. But repentance just means that, you know, it's a change of mind so that you do have, it does produce a sense of regret and even remorse, but it's because of our sin. But there is a change that's made, like it's acknowledging your sin, it's remorse over that sin, and then it's just changing our mind. But you got to recognize it. In our Psalm 119 study that we're doing at Athe Women right now, I was looking recently at Psalm 119.59, and it just has this little phrase and it says, I think on my ways. Such a simple sentence, but talk about something that we don't want to do. You know, I mean, even to just be kind of quiet and really have an introspective moment. Sometimes we don't even want to do that. We kind of avoid quiet when we can. We'll fill our time with all kinds of input, whatever it is. But there's noise, 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 noise. It's always something going on. And I wonder if sometimes all of that noise, all of that distraction just kind of anesthetizes us from thinking on our ways. Because we don't have to, right? There's always something to distract us. There's something flashy over here. It's kind of that squirrel moment, you know, and we just get distracted and we don't just think on our ways. Coming to the Lord with that spirit of confession and repentance, it's a tough one to do because often you have to ask the Lord, Lord, show me any wicked way within me. Show me my sin. And, you know, that's a scary question to ask. To ask the Lord to show and convict you of your sin, we don't always want the answers to that. But we need to do that. We need to recognize that our sin is the problem. And it's easy to look out in our culture and go, well, the sin might be their problem because, you know, they're down there burning buildings or sin might be their problem because of the hate that they're, you know, just wreaking havoc on over here. But guys, that same sin is in me. It's in you. Psalm 51.4 says, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sometimes we can think that our sin is, you know, it's something we've done to someone else or we've hurt someone else. And that does come as a byproduct of our sin. It's hurtful to other people. It's hurtful to us. But Psalm 51 points out that we're sinning against the Lord. Man, that's a sobering moment, right? To think that your sin, that my sin, that we're sinning against the Lord. That's sobering, that's humbling to think that. But I think we do need to think on it. We need to think on our ways, like Psalm 119 says, and realize that we are all in the same boat. We've all got this problem of sin. And this problem of sin is not gonna disappear in a month. It's just not, guys. But the answer to our sin might just be simple. It might not be as nuanced as the world thinks it should be. The answer is simply acknowledging your sin, my sin. We just have to acknowledge that, believing that Jesus died and rose for you, for me. And that is the answer to our sinful condition. That is the gospel. So today, when we are thinking about all the momentous things that are happening, or whenever you're listening to this, maybe some of you guys aren't even listening to this on election day. But I hope that you'll be encouraged that regardless of what's going on in our world, be reminded that God is on his throne. He is king and he is sovereign. But also not to discourage you, but to kind of give us a little bit of a moment of reality. Guys, our sin is what is the problem that we have right now. And I do pray for revival in us personally. And that revival comes by prayer and repentance. And I pray for it personally. I pray for it in our churches. I pray for it in our country. But just as we kind of looked at those little pieces, those examples of how we saw that in some of those revival moments, there's no reason to see, guys, that the Lord will not do another revival like that in our country. How amazing would that be to see thousands, thousands and thousands and thousands of people be saved? Guys, it is in the hard times, isn't it, that we tend to look into maybe thinking on our own ways a little bit. But then when we do look at our own ways and we kind of do get to that place where you're like, wow, this is a big, messy lump of clay. And you can do a couple things in those moments. You can kind of get mad of, you know, why God did this happen? But as you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, when you look at how, you know, he is the molder, he is the potter himself boy, I don't want to be asking God why. He is the one that's sovereign. He is one who's in control. I want to close with just this last verse, because I think it almost just serves as a benediction a little bit. But this is Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6, 13 through 16. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope, guys, right there. And then in verse 15, he says, which, will be, which we will display at the proper time. And I love this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's how he ends that. And I hope that if at any point today, or like I said, if you're not listening to this on election day, we need to hear this every day. Because God is sovereign every day. Not just yesterday, not just on election day, every single day. But let that be on our minds today. His honor, his eternal dominion, Thank you for tuning in to the Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.